Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, former President Donald Trump was arrested this week, and we are going to talk about that. Right now, corporate news media seem to be doing what corporate news media do, employing an idea of balance that suggests that the rule of law is maybe up for debate. Or maybe it's even just a stick to poke Republicans with. And who's to say what's a crime anyway? Well, we're going to talk about that in the future. But this week, we want to talk about another kind of crime. The slow, steady, drip, drip of crime that doesn't necessarily leap out to reporters. That's the day-to-day crushing of workers' attempts to organize themselves to have a voice in the workplace about not just their pay, but their well-being and their dignity. Crushing those attempts to work together is actually against the law, but it's not the sort of crime that elite media seem able to identify. And it's much harder to fight when the law-breaking megacorporation is as media-savvy and as faux-progressive as Starbucks. Sharav Sharkar has been reporting Starbucks workers' efforts not to quit their workplace, but to transform it into a place where they can make a living and have some say in their lives, while, yes, also giving you your cappuccino. Sharkar writes for Labor Notes, for Jacobin, and for Fair.org, among other outlets. We'll hear from them today on Counterspin. That's coming up, but first, a quick look back at some recent press. In February, the New York Times reported that Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot suffered a, quote, resounding defeat that reflected widespread dissatisfaction from voters over her handling of crime and policing in the nation's third largest city, unquote. Lightfoot, the New York Times said, saw her popularity plunge as Chicago suffered a spike in violent crime with looting and destruction on its famed Magnificent Mile. Her defeat, the Times said, therefore illustrated how, quote, in some of America's largest, most liberal cities, hard-on-crime policies have increasingly resonated with voters, close quote. The Times described former Chicago school superintendent Paul Vallis, who ran against Lightfoot, as arguing that he can make the city safer calling for bolstering the police force and improving arrest rates for serious crimes. Cook County Board Commissioner Brandon Johnson, his opponent, was summed up as, quote, suggesting that he agreed with the movement to reduce funding to police departments, close quote. Okay, so fast forward about a month later when Brandon Johnson defeated Paul Vallis in the runoff by almost three percentage points. Now the New York Times says, quote, it was not entirely surprising that Chicago would reject tough on crime talk, close quote. Except it would be surprising if you'd read the Reams of Times reporting that suggested that tough on crime is exactly what voters wanted. 
And no, there are no indications that the people who had something else to say will be listened to anymore going forward. And then finally, in other no-big-deal news, a new climate study was published in the prominent and peer-reviewed science journal Nature. The study found that a little-observed deep ocean circulation system is slowing dramatically, and it could collapse this century. As Julie Holler noted for FAIR.org, one author who was not involved in the study declared it headline news. But U.S. corporate media didn't seem to agree. The study authors, if you're interested, modeled the effects of Antarctic meltwater on deep ocean currents that are crucial to marine ecosystems. That Antarctic overturning circulation has major planetary impacts. It pushes nutrient-dense water from the ocean floor up toward the surface where those nutrients support marine life. The Nature Study found that this circulation system is projected to slow down 42% by 2050, with a total collapse this century, according to the study co-author Matthew England. CNN was the only major U.S. media outlet that Julie Huller could find covering this news. Major media They've come a long way from calling climate disruption a fanciful notion to declaring it real but responses to it debatable to declaring it really serious business. But somehow it still stops there just when it comes to what we need to do to halt it. And then it's as though no further science is needed. We get it, it's bad, and we'll just sort it out or not from here. Disrespecting science means disrespecting science and misconveying the import of the knowledge that is growing every day about climate disruption and how we should respond. So if coverage of this study is any indication, corporate news media's commitment to a livable planet is just a kind of sometimes thing and not an active working principle. And it comes nowhere near to matching the urgency of the situation. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Who remembers back in 2000 when the New York Times announced that they had, quoting the paper now, agreed to the sale of the New York Times newspapers in Starbucks stores for three years in exchange for the Times' advertising promotion of Starbucks. Financial terms were not disclosed, close quote. Or 2015, when Starbucks announced an elevated digital news experience based on an expanded relationship with the New York Times. Now, the coffee company's loyal customers could get free access to the Times' top stories of the day via the Starbucks app, as well as the chance to earn stars by buying a Times subscription. We are now to look to the New York Times for serious independent scrutiny of its former profit partner as Starbucks finds the bloom off its rose. 
with workers, the National Labor Relations Board, and ever larger swaths of the public denouncing its attempt to squash union organizing. Maybe add some different news sources to your list, is all I'm saying, including those who never fell for the $113 billion company's humble, progressive, who-needs-a-union-when-we're-all-family-here shtick in the first place. Shorov Sharkar is a movement writer, editor, and activist who's been reporting on Starbucks' worker efforts for workplace rights and voice for a while now. They join us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Shorov Sharkar. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I don't wish struggling against a behemoth like Starbucks, like Amazon, on anybody. But from the outside, it's hard not to get really excited because these are the companies that self-declare as the way of the future. So exposing what makes that model run is critical. So for me, the intelligence and the energy of these workers is just such a breath of air and hope. But I know that there's not just time and sweat, but fear and precarity and danger behind this work. You've been close up reporting these efforts. These workers see how big a thing they're part of, don't they? You know, I think they increasingly do. I think towards the beginning, there wasn't as much of a sense among the workers of exactly what they were sort of the size of what they were doing and the enormity of, of what they were taking on. And I think that, you know, they were organizing maybe a couple dozen people in their own store. Um, and that's sort of the scale that they were looking at it. And they were joining up with other people who were organizing in other stores. Um, but it, over time, it became clear, clearer, I think, that this was really a nationwide struggle. Um, and that happened, it didn't take too long for that to happen, but it didn't happen immediately. That's my sense anyway. But now I would say that, you know, especially during the testimony that Howard Schultz just had at the Senate Health Committee, a lot of baristas told me that they felt a sense of community. They really enjoyed being with one another and you have to remember a lot of their organizing work happens, they're spread out all over the country. So a lot of their organizing work happens on Zoom. They, you know, they're very close and tightly knit with people in their own store, maybe people in their local area. But as a national movement, they don't get to see each other all that much. So I think their sense of oneness and togetherness has really grown over time. Well, just as a point of information, the baristas don't have quite a union yet. What is the status of their kind of organized entity? You know, what's what's going on there? They have a network, which is called Starbucks Workers United. And that network is attached to Workers United. And Workers United is a union. And so when they are joining the union, when a store decides to unionize, they become Workers United members. And then Workers United itself is an affiliate of SEIU, which is a, a large major union. 
Of course. Well, let's come back to Howard Schultz's recent congressional testimony. He didn't want to testify. He was subpoenaed. Uh, I, I have read accounts about how he looked goofy for invoking his father's workplace injury as somehow an anti-union argument and for whining about being called a billionaire because to him, somehow just having billions of dollars doesn't warrant that label. But, you know, Howard Schultz can stand to look awkward for an hour and then ride off in his gold limousine, you know. Uh, What do you think might be the impact of this hearing? And, And then just generally, how do you think about congressional action, vis-a-vis shop-to-shop organizing. I mean, it's not an either-or, but maybe a both-and. What did what did you get from that testimony? Um, well, to start with the testimony, I was actually less struck by... I think other people thought that he did worse than I did. I thought he managed to escape relatively unscathed. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, a fair amount of questioning of him, but the contrast I draw is between something like an intervention rather than something like a courtroom interrogation. And I really felt like many of the Democratic senators that were asking him questions were kind of trying to cajole him, beseech him to be a better CEO. And then... On the other side, there were obviously the Republican senators, and with the exception of one, I think, all of them took the position that you would expect them to take, which is that they were, you know, wholeheartedly in support of Starbucks, wholeheartedly in support of Schultz, questioning why they even needed to have a hearing, questioning the credibility of the NLRB, trying to muddy the waters and make it seem like this was really about Starbucks versus the NLRB. Uh, but I didn't think that that Schultz fared that badly in the hearing. But after the hearing, I was surprised with just because I've I've been in I've been immersed in this area. I've basically assigned it to myself as a beat as a freelancer. Right. And I've been immersed in this for about a year, uh, maybe a little bit longer, and. I was I was struck by how much more attention the general public was paying to these issues. Uh, you know, a barista told me that at her store right after the hearing, when she went in, customers were coming up to her and asking her whether things that had been said were true or not. I saw, I believe it was Mark Ruffalo had, on Twitter had shared a petition from the Starbucks workers. So it definitely seemed like it, escalated the campaign in the public eye. And I think that's a positive thing for the the Starbucks workers movement. I think the more public exposure there is to this issue, the better it's going to be for them. Just to be clear, we're not talking here about company policy. That's not exactly what's at issue, not things that Starbucks does as a company that we might disagree with. We really are talking about violations of law, of labor law, and I don't want that to be lost. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's both, but yeah. Um, yeah. It, but there are 
enormous numbers of violations of labor law that Starbucks is engaging in. And that not only this is an, actually an example of where I thought the senators could have gone further. So, that you know, there was a lot of talk about the NLRB and the, the number of judgments. There was a recent judgment from Buffalo that an administrative law judge had um, issued that was, I think, 200 pages long, something like that. And that judge found egregious and widespread misconduct by Starbucks. And there were a whole range of remedies that were ordered. But the senators didn't focus on the fact that federal courts have also, uh, or actually, sorry, I should say court, um, mm-hmm. at least in one instance, a federal court has also found that Starbucks violated labor law. And so, you know, a lot of the defenses that have been mounted or that were mounted by Schultz at the hearing, like, oh, this is in litigation. Oh, we're not sure that this is true. Oh, we don't know. We, we think we didn't break the law and that settles the matter. You know, it's almost Trumpian in, in how it denies the the reality of what's actually happening. It basically, the attitude seemed to be that it, anything that challenged or contradicted what he thought should be the, the case was not credible. And obviously that's not the case in the real world. And that's where you look for journalists to step in and kind of separate, you know, you can call something an allegation, but if fact, if the word fact means anything, then right. then you can apply it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, as much as the bravery of the workers, these past months have highlighted the deep skeeviness of the company. You know, we're all partners here. But if you try to get together with other partners, well, then us partners are going to fire all of you partners, you know. Um, But remember that rainbow coffee cup we did that time? You know, I I really feel that if we can pierce PR this thick, this committed, this well-funded, then we're really on to developing some useful skills. I think that's definitely the case. And I think actually the PR works in the favor of the labor movement. I think it's actually easier to go after a company like Starbucks, as massive as it is, because they're putting themselves out as a progressive company. So then you can go right back at them and say, well, if you're a progressive company, then why are you doing X, Y, and Z? Whereas a company like, say, Walmart, that makes no pretense to that, it would be harder to hold them to a standard. So, for example, Starbucks uh, brags about the trans-friendly health care benefits that it has, but then it wields those, the loss, potential loss of those benefits over the heads of trans workers who are part of the union drive, right? Now, that wouldn't happen if Starbucks in the first place didn't say, well, we're trans-friendly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we find corporate media's kind of playing off of workers versus consumers to be among their most damaging frames. And you write about labor and its multiple intersections. So how do you avoid that framing, especially when, you know, people are 
crossing picket lines to get their caramel frappuccino. But how do you present the story in a way that doesn't pit workers versus consumers? I mean, I think workers and consumers have the same uh, foe in this instance. I mean, workers are consumers and consumers are workers. And so there, there's really no... There's no reason to pit them against each other. And, and so that's one, that's from my personal standpoint. But then in addition, I really take to heart the approach and the mentality that the workers themselves have towards these kinds of issues. And they, they're not, you know, like standing outside of Starbucks with metal rods going, going after consumers who are crossing a picket line. Right. You know, as much as they might be displeased at, what people do they also they're they're judged i mean this is a point i actually meant to make in the course of the interview at some point that they're they're among the nicest <laughs> warmest people you're ever going to meet right it's it's like a pure joy to be covering this beat because of the workers that i talk to and they genuinely value their relationships with their customers and so i i don't think that there's uh downside to unionization for the customers themselves. If anything, I think their customer experience would probably improve, or at least that's the sense that the baristas have. Well, and this is what I'm I'm kind of thinking about, because I do think that journalism could lift up instead of these templates that say, oh, well, you might want workers to have a union or to have a voice in the workplace, but do you want to pay 27 more cents for your blah, blah, blah? I feel like that's old. I feel like folks are not falling for that anymore. So I'm happy to hear you say that, you know, that kind of framing uh, is passe, you know, and we Mm -hmm. should resist it when we find it in reporting. Yeah, definitely. That's the case. And also, I think that the workers themselves and the union have gone out of their way to point out that, you know, you're not happy about waiting an inordinate amount of time for your drink at Starbucks either. And if they weren't short-staffed, you wouldn't have to wait. If they didn't have mobile orders going all the time and not being able to, you know, turn them off just because a district manager or manager says, that they can't be turned off, then, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have to wait as long. It might not be as crowded. Um, You'd get your drink faster. Your drink would be prepared with greater amount of care because the barista would have slightly more time to prepare the drink. So, you know, I mean, it really is in the consumer's interest in this case. And I think a a lot of the consumers who go to Starbucks also go to Starbucks because of that progressive branding. You know, I mean, there you know there are plenty of people who just go to Starbucks because they don't just want the coffee, but but you you can get coffee almost anywhere, right? So why are you going to Starbucks? Some of the people who go to Starbucks go because the company holds itself out as a decent company, and we ought to hold them up to that standard. And I guess what I'm saying, or what I'm hoping for, is that journalism would invest itself in making Starbucks. Um, transparent and really live up to the 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 claims that they make, and also that we would kind of lift up in general our 
our demands and our understanding of what it means for a company to really call itself progressive and to not just allow that to be a label. Absolutely. I, I absolutely agree with that. Well, what do you see going forward? I mean, I the what the outcome of the Schultz hearing seemed to be was he was being asked to do some things and he was like, I'm not doing that, you know. Um, so it seems like it goes back down to shop to shop. And I know you're going to keep reporting it. What would you ask folks to look out for in terms of reporting? What would you like to see more of or less of in terms of public understanding of what's going on in this very, very important worker rights fight? Something that I would really love to see more of, and I would include myself in this category, actually, um, is just more reporting about the baristas themselves and their lives, what it's like to work in the Starbucks. I, you know, I, I see people post, I see baristas posting things on Twitter that, have a level of detail and nuance to what it's like to actually work in this store that I don't see communicated in most of the stories. And like journalists have a limited amount of space and they're writing about particular kinds of news. But um, at a certain point, we have to stop telling the same story over and over and start really getting in depth into what is actually making these workers tick, what are they like? Why do they want to unionize? What differentiates them from um, other industries? What's similar to other industries? You know, uh, that's something that I think would be would be very welcome. And I think that that would be useful both to readership and viewership, as well as to the union movement in terms of understanding, like, hey, like, these are actual human beings. They're not just people that serve you a drink for three minutes. We've been speaking with activist, writer, and editor Shorav Sharkar. You can find their varied work on their site, sharvsharkar.com. Thank you so much, Shorav, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based here in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. That's also the place to sign up for FAIR's newsletter, Extra. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.